Second Corinthians is our new book that we're going to study through, and I have some great resources. Boy, I spent some time yesterday again working, looking at some of my new study tools. This Lagos or Logos Bible software. Wow, wow, wow. Did I find some good stuff in there? I'll share some of it with you. I gave an introduction to Second Corinthians a couple of weeks ago, and so today we'll begin with chapter 1 and verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia. This uh, is a very interesting book because it starts out somewhat differently than a lot of the books. This is not unusual. Paul, an apostle by the will of God, he says things like that in the beginning of many of his epistles. But rather than beginning with thanksgiving, um, as he does often, he begins in verse 3 with blessing God who has shown mercy to Paul, or to Paul and his apostolic companions. So he starts talking about what God's done in his life, which is very unusual. And so I'll be talking a little bit about why that would possibly be the case, given the genre and given the, the situation in Corinth. And one of the things Paul is doing is he wants them, he wants the Corinthians to see how much Paul has gone through and how merciful God's been to Paul and how much comfort Paul's received because they're looking at him in a bad light. They're uh, listening to some, quote, super apostles that he talks about in chapter 11 that are suggesting that Paul's really not somebody worth listening to because look at what a messed up life he has. He's, he's not impressive. He's not eloquent. He's all the time getting beat up and, uh, and so on. And what Paul is hoping to do here is for them to see his own, Paul's own sufferings and the comfort he's received from God in the midst of his sufferings as a good thing that God has done and as something that they should show him some kindness about rather than judge him. Because it's really a tough thing to go through suffering And then to be judged by your Christian brothers and sisters, uh, suggesting that because you're suffering, you're a worse Christian. That still goes on today, doesn't it? Um, I wrote an article on that called Job's Comforters Revisited. It seems like every generation has another generation of Job's Comforters. (laughs) The health and wealth gospel. Yeah. So, so anybody who has affliction is really afflicted by God. Yeah, that's the doctrine. And, it, and that's somewhat the way they were looking at Paul. So just about any error that exists existed in history. And so they're looking at Paul as a worse Christian because he's going through suffering. And there are some that would do the same today. Now let's unpack this chapter 1 and verse 1 a little bit. First it says, Paul is an apostle. Now we, we need to determine what is meant by that, when Paul says he's an apostle by the will of God, and distinguish it from the general term apostle that's used in the New Testament in other contexts. Um, the word apostle literally means a sent one, okay? And it can either mean an authoritative apostle, one of the apostles of Jesus Christ who have been ordained by him to give the New Testament revelation, or it can mean simply one sent on any kind of a mission. 
Okay? And here, Paul means apostle in the unique sense of, of one of the people who are authorized by Jesus Christ to speak forth the terms of the new covenant in authoritative revelation. Now, one of the ways we know that is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So, let's turn to that. I left my big Bible at home. So, I got a I got two of them at home. I had one I used to leave here. It ended up my briefcase and ended up at home. <laughs> I don't know, Lois. I mean, we're having a small print contest between me and Lois here. <laughs> you got an extra 30 years on me, so if you can read yours, I think that's really something. <laughs> Okay, First Corinthians. Uh, the reason I end up with I, this little Bible is my briefcase Bible, just because I always have so much stuff. It gets really heavy, and I don't have an office here at the church because it's no longer our building. So I don't have a place where my Bible is, and it ends up at home. And then I forget to throw my briefcase. So I got this little. This is sort of like your little pocket dagger that you have in secondary weapon, <laughs> the sword of the spirit here. Now, here's what, 1 Corinthians 15, we'll start with verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which, all, which also you received, and which also you stand, by which also you were, are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to Scriptures, that He was buried... And that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Now notice, Paul is saying that the gospel is of first importance. And that's something that is easy to lose track of. I was just sharing with Robert here. He, um, he was showing me a John MacArthur track that, that was really a good track. And was saying that that sermon I gave last, whenever it was, about what the gospel is and is not, all of those things that I saw as important are also integrated in this track. Now, I remember a time when I didn't feel this way. And basically the first 15 years of my Christian life. And I think I can understand where a lot of people are at because I was that there myself. After I became a Christian and I learned the basic doctrines of the faith at Bible college, I went into uh, a ministry um, that was a part of the charismatic renewal. And we were trying to help people get their lives straightened out, and, and which is certainly a good thing to do. But I know how I thought then, and I think I know what was wrong with how I thought then. I thought that the, that the gospel was just a, kind of a real simple basic thing that gets you started, but 99.9% of your life is the rest of it. Okay, so what I wasn't doing was connecting the gospel with all of life. And so everybody came and said, oh yeah, you know, we'd ask them, have you accepted Jesus? Yeah, everybody would say that basically. If you didn't, and if they didn't, we'd lead them in a sinner's prayer, which was a deficient thing in itself that I didn't understand was deficient. And then we try to figure out 
how do you get rid of your problems? You got a marriage problem, then we got to figure out how to fix that. <coughs> you got sin problems, then we figure out how to fix that. You got relationship problems, you got job problems, whatever job we got to try to figure it out. And then we kept coming up with new theories about how to fix all these things. And unbeknownst to me, not by choice, but not, in other words, I never, never at any point did I decide I'm going to quit being gospel centric. Or I never actually decided, well, the gospel is just a little thing, but it's what it became. And I never realized how far away from it I'd gotten until 1986 when I studied the book of Romans. And I realized from Paul's own writing, and if you, it's, once you see it, it's like the lights come on. Paul is talking about gospel all the time. And so he, he says here, these things that we just thought, well, they're rudimentary, which I suppose they actually are, but they're, they're never lacking in significance and impact. He said, this is of first importance. Okay? This is of first importance. And if you read Philippians, you read 1 Corinthians, you read Romans, Paul was going back to the gospel again and again and again and again, and it was everything to him. And I, what, I, what had happened to me for those 15 years, well, number one, I had bad theology. Because if I did run into somebody unsaved, I'd ask them if they asked Jesus into their heart. That's just what we, that's what I heard, that's all I knew. And nobody ever challenged whether that was a biblical idea or not. Until now, Ray Comforted and Todd Friel are challenging it day and night. But there wasn't anybody publicly saying that that was kind of a deficient understanding. I didn't, I just didn't know any better. And, um, I think what it was was the gospel was weighing too lightly upon me. Okay? You know, the word for, um, glory, kabod, means heavy. And that God's holiness and His glory and, and the splendor of what He's done should just weigh upon us so that we talk about it coming in and going out and it's everything. And that was not true for the first 15 years of my life. And consequently, I ended up in all kinds of sidetracks that I, I wasn't as good a pastor or as good of, of, of a minister as I could have been because of the deficient understanding of the gospel. So 86 was a crucial year because that's when I understood the doctrines of grace and, and what the gospel was about. But then another uh, watershed for me was in 1998 when I heard Don, uh, John MacArthur talk about uh, restoring the disheartened pastor's joy out of Second Corinthians. That's one of the reasons I want to teach through here. He was teaching out of Second Corinthians. And then I realized in 898 that now, now I had gotten the right doctrine in my mind about what the gospel was. But in, when I heard MacArthur, I began to realize that the greatest privilege that any man has ever been given is the privilege of pastoring in such a way that they could preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and defend it. Amen. That there's nothing more blessed than that. And, 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 he, and he said it's worth everything. It's worth whatever suffering. It's worth being rejected. It's worth not being popular. It's worth not getting a paycheck. It's worth anything to have the gospel be everything in your life. And so... What that helped me to do was to become gospel centric. Alright? Not only to believe what it is, but somehow to become like Paul where this is everything. This, the privilege of preaching the gospel is so important that nothing else is even close. Amen. And I, I think that's how Paul saw it. Yes. And I think that when you go to a church or when you meet another person or when you're looking at a website or some Christian book, 
what is preached when usually there's a problem and then you have an antidote. If the antidote isn't the gospel, that's what's not central. And when we talk, when you go, and I think it's a core issue of discerning, is this a Christian, uniquely Christian thing that somebody's saying, or is it just good ideas repackaged in the Christian uh, book covers? Because what's proclaimed as the answer and the antidote to whatever problem that you have is the gospel, because ultimately the only problem we have that really matters eternally is the wrath of God against sin. In a hundred years, I promise you, none of you will have any other problem but that. That's the only problem you have. And that's the only one that matters. Yeah, and if that one's been resolved in a hundred years from now, you won't have it. Exactly. <laughs> um, Ryan just, by the way, I finished your book and I forgot to bring it. I got, a, I got some red on it, but not a lot. Not, nothing like what Dick does. <laughs> I mean, when it comes to putting red ink on things, Dick's the master, and I'm just, I'm just a rookie. <laughs> but anyhow, Ryan, I commend you. Your book is gospel centered. It's just exactly what we were just talking about. All the way through, it goes back to the gospel and the means of grace. And it's basically a primer for a new Christian about what the Christian life is. And I, I, I like it. I commend, I commend you. We just got finished going through Hebrews, and... What's interesting about that is there, there, I know one of the passages that some people bring up to think that, well, the gospel is something you move on from is in Hebrews when it says, well, we have these elementary things and let's move on from the elementary things. But if you, I mean, we've just been through Hebrews, but what, is, what are we moving on from? The elementary things isn't like we're moving on to something else. We're moving on to the greater, deeper depths of the gospel. That's what the writer of Hebrews is wanting all of us to get into. And he, from beginning to end of Hebrews, we just went through it, it's all about Jesus yeah, and what amen. he's done. And he amen. wants us to understand about the priesthood and Melchizedek yeah. and all these things. And Some of it's difficult to understand, but that's what he wants us to do. He wants us to dig into these, these deep things. It's not moving on from the gospel, it's moving deeper into the gospel. That's exactly right. So uh, it, it, it never goes out of style, goes out of style yeah. at all. You made a good point the other day when we were talking about this, Ryan. I was talking to Ryan about gospel issues and we were discussing those who say that repentance has no place in the gospel. And Ryan made a really good point. He says, well, how can you say that? Because it says in Hebrews that one of the rudimentary things of the gospel is repentance from dead works. And so right there, it just makes it part and parcel of gospel. That's similar to what we read in 1 Corinthians 15. They're talking about elementary principles. Yeah. Necessary elements of the gospel. Amen. Well, so here's what we're reading. Okay, so... Paul is an apostle, and everything to Paul is gospel. Okay, And he is contending that Jesus Christ was raised on the third day before witnesses. So the gospel is not uh, fideistic. Fideism means you just believe out of sheer willpower, or you just believe for the sake of believing, and it doesn't need any verification in the real world. And there are fideists out there. Uh, yeah, the Mormons are fideists. They believe in the Book of Mormon because they got a burning in their bosom when they read it. That's their proof. The Book of Mormon is not tied to the real world in any way, shape, or form because the places and events never happened. They don't exist. Now, Paul isn't a fideist because he believes here that it's important that we realize that this re resurrected Christ, this Christ who died for sins, appeared to witnesses. He appeared resurrected in his physical body, Jesus Christ come in the flesh, to credible witnesses 
who became his apostles. And therefore, our message is not based on myth or cleverly devised tales. This is a concrete event that happened in real places in history that can be verified and, and before witnesses. So here's what he goes on about what is of first importance. And he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. Some have fallen asleep. Now why is he saying that some, most of these remain till now? They're witnesses. You can go ask them whether Jesus was raised. He's defending the doctrine of the resurrection. All right? Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And then look at this. Uh, and a lot of has been written about this in, in, in theological books. Verse 8. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. And as Oral Steinkamp taught here when we had our conference about Latter-day Apostles and Prophets, this last, this last of all means the very, the very last in the series. That there were all these ones. Here's, he's the last one. This is not something that's going to happen uh, in 19th century to Joseph Smith. This is not going to happen because Jesus appeared to the last of these witnesses as one born out of time, to Paul. He's the last apostle, according to this passage. And we won't see Jesus come in the flesh again until he comes at the parousia, and he's going to be judgment and salvation. So there's no other appearances to create new apostles, okay? And I think that this is core, and you know, we're doing a big fight against mysticism. And there's a whole concept that the apostles were mystics. In fact, I know a guy who just preached a sermon over on Lake of the Isles that Paul was, that Paul was the greatest mystic in the Christian church. What he's saying is that he saw Jesus with his own eyes and that it wasn't mystical. That's where the authority comes from. It was from. concrete. It yeah. was in cold, sober history that Jesus appeared to these people. They didn't have a mystical Jesus with a mystical experience like some Matagorda or some something that way. It was a real, tangible person. Therefore, what we believe is true. As a matter of fact, we have a videotape in our library which is boxed away somewhere. <laughs> Sorry about that. But there's a videotape where this Gary Habermas is debating with um, Anthony Flew, I believe, one of the most famous uh, atheists. And they were at talking about this passage just because they, Anthony, the, uh, the, the critics will accept that Paul wrote Corinthians because it's very well validated. There's times or places you can tell where Paul was at what date when he wrote Corinthians because of Acts. And, and so they were debating about whether this was a real tangible experience because the atheists would say if it wasn't, then all kinds of people have dreams. And Gary Habermas was debating this was a real tangible experience that Paul saw, not just something he made up or something that appeared in his subconscious mind. People are saying all the time now Jesus is appearing to them, right? How big was the Jesus that appeared to Oral Roberts? 60 feet tall. <laughs> Where's the mic? Oh, <laughs> you fooled me, Robert. You moved. <laughs> okay. I think it's interesting also that from this point on, the believers are referred to as disciples. So they, they, didn't, they didn't add apostles to the church. They added disciples. Right. The well, the, what, what, the point I'm trying to establish by going to, uh, from first, 2 Corinthians 1, 1 to 1 Corinthians 15 is that Paul is claiming to be an apostle in the unique and special sense of the term, 
not in the functional sense. Now, the people that believe in Latter-day Apostles will point out that there are different, 23 different people called Apostles in the New Testament. But they don't understand these distinctions. They're, the word Apostle can either be a technical term for an authoritative Apostle, like Peter, James, John, Paul, or it can mean simply a sent one, depending on the context. In one case, somebody's called an apostle because he was sent with a gift to Paul from, from Philippi, to where Paul was in jail. But it's just simply his functional terminology. He's a sent one. He didn't, Epaphroditus, whoever it was, was never called, never considered an authoritative apostle. Yes. Well, in verse 1-1, that's what Paul's claiming. He you goes, need. I'm a sent one from Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ bodily sent me. In fact, if you go back and read Acts 20, the end of Acts, he talks about his vision on the road. And Jesus Christ himself said, I have appointed you to go preach to the Gentiles. Right. So he's claiming that Jesus Christ himself sent him, not some church, not some church that had a feeling that they might could be sent to Mount. We could send Bob out as an apostle of, of Twin City Fellowship, and you'd have all the authority that Twin City Fellowship has. But that's it. You can't speak for God because we're not God. Yeah, we don't have any authority beyond the Scripture. He's claiming to speak for Jesus Christ himself in right. the first, first sentence. Exactly. So that makes him a unique apostle. So now here, let me read a little more, and then we'll go back to our passage. For he says, I'm the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Notice the word church. We're going to talk about that here next uh, or momentarily because that's uh, an interesting term, ecclesia. But here it meant Christians in general were all part of the very church that Jesus Christ founded. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God in me. So, Paul claimed to be an authoritative apostle, the least of the apostles because of what he had been before, but nevertheless an apostle and an authoritative one. One is born out of time, one the last in a series of appearances. He's the last one Jesus is going to appear to. So if somebody says they saw a 60-foot high Jesus and told him to build the city of faith, what do you say? I'd say... I'd say do it with somebody else's money, not mine. Okay? <laughs> All right, now back to our passage here. An apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, commissioned by Jesus, appeared to him as we just set, set part by God. He said in Galatians that he was, well, here's a, let's do some cross references. Yeah, let's just start right there. Dale. I cheated. I asked him his name earlier. Because <laughs> I know you're sitting in the front. I'd probably call on you. Could you read uh, Galatians 1, 15, and 16? Galatians 1, 15, and 16. And Robert, I'll hand you the mic. And then, Michelle, while he's doing that, could you look up Acts 9, 15, and 16? But anyhow, the point here is that this is something that God had specifically appointed him to. And we'll read some passages about that. While they're looking. Uh, and he says, into Timothy, a brother. So he was a co-sender of the letter a second witness to the truth of Paul's exhortations. And Timothy often, as you know, was, was accompanying Paul. He was one of his key helpers. And um, Timothy uh, was not an apostle. Now, again, I remember reading a book many years ago where that was claiming that they're Latter-day Apostles. And I said, no, Timothy was an apostle, and it cites a passage where it calls him a sent one. 
But it was again not the, that it was a, it, it just simply meant Timothy had been sent on a mission. Yeah, exactly. It's that one from Paul or it's that one from the church. Okay, got it. Galatians 1, 15 and 16. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. But I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. Okay, so what Paul was establishing is what we're just saying here, that he received his apostleship directly from Jesus. It wasn't uh, transferred to him by other apostles. Now, like we were saying earlier, Timothy was sent by Paul. Paul was sent by Jesus Christ. So that makes him uniquely uh, one of the twelve apostles. Okay, or one of the apostles. Okay, now let's look at Acts 9, 15 and 16. This is the story of Paul's conversion. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Interesting. So Paul, was, Ananias, who went to pray for Paul, was afraid to because he knew Paul was trying to kill the Christians, was told by God that this guy was chosen. And he was chosen to suffer. Okay. Now... And we'll talk, then we're going to talk about the church. In Acts 26, he says the same thing. He, Paul's thought, because there's three different times Paul talks about his vision on the road. In Acts 26, he goes, At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me, and those who were journeying with me. When we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? For it is hard for you to kick against the goats. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus who are you persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you to a minister, as a, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Okay. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, and that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in God. Yeah, and that's what, that's what he testified before kings and governors. So the gospel was central in Paul's life, and wherever he was sent to testify, he was to be a witness of the truth of the gospel. And so when we are called disciples and we are sent to testify, we are testifying to the fact that the gospel is true. Amen. We're, we're witnessing about Jesus. Okay, so we need to understand the centrality of the gospel. Now, yes, yes. Oh, Carla. Uh, there are just a list of other things as well that affirm Paul's whole commission there when you think that Ananias was, it was revealed to him where Paul was, what his name was, and that when he went to the place, Paul really was there. And, and when he prayed for him, he really was blind and he really was healed. And so you have those kinds of things yeah. that are affirming it. And then when Paul went away and studied uh, for some time, what he said and, and the content of all of his teaching is in line with what the other apostles said. And it's in line with the Old Testament. And so there's other facets yeah. that also yeah. support his the validity of his apostleship. I totally agree. And you see the continuity 
throughout the Bible, including in the writings of Paul, not discontinuity, as some would suggest. Now, let's talk about the church. Look at the use here. To the church of God, which is at Corinth. Now, um, I having my new high-powered software, sure takes more time to study now because I do more of it. I... Uh, you know about uh, what's called Kittle, but this whole theological dictionary, it's the most comprehensive Greek work about that's available and the most definitive one, the absolute best. And I've had it for like 25 years, but I have rarely consulted it, although I have, but it's a lot of work. Well, now i got it's a click. <laughs> click. So I was on Ecclesia, Ecclesia Church. I go, click, Kittle. <laughs> And I was reading, what a great essay in Kittle on, um, on Ecclesia. Now, this word means an assembly. So it's very comprehensive. Pages just on this word in this dictionary I was reading. And there was a point made about this passage right here in there I thought was very interesting. And see, sometimes the church means the whole church in the sense that all of the Lord's redeemed in aggregate, wherever they might be, and sometimes it means a local assembly. And um, and sometimes the word ecclesia is meant, used in the New Testament just to talk about any assembly, not a, not a church. Because I'll show you some examples of that. But I'm going to quote from this uh, theological dictionary. Quote, we have pointed out that the sum of the individual congregations does not produce the total community or the church. Each community, however small, represents the total community of the church. This is supported by 1 Corinthians 1-2. Actually, 1-1. The church in Corinth. The church which is at Corinth. And also by 2 Corinthians 1-1. The true rendering here is not the Corinthian congregation, which would stand side by side with the Roman, but, quote, the congregation church assembly as it is in Corinth. If anyone is despised in such a gathering, if people, 1 Corinthians 6, 4, if anyone um, come together in it, 1 Corinthians 11, 18, 14, 23, Acts 14, 27, if women are to keep silent in it, 1 Corinthians 14, 23, if it is not to be burdened, 1 Timothy 5, 16, these things apply to the church as a whole and not merely to the local congregation. So in a sense, it's as if the the, the, the church, in its bigger sense, with Jesus as the head, is appearing on the scene of history in Corinth as a, as a local manifestation of this bigger church. Okay? Uh, and th- I, then I was reading, my, I, I got a new commentary, too, that came with this software, New American Commentary, by David Garland. It's fabulous. I'll be quoting from it much like I did Lane in Hebrews. It seems like each book in the Bible, I find some commentary that's just so much better than all the rest. And so I was reading Kittle yesterday afternoon, and then I went home to try to fix the lawnmower. I spent three hours and failed. <laughs> and then I went back to study in Corinthians, and I was reading the Garland commentary, and he cited this passage from Kittle. And he thought it was significant as well, which I had found earlier in my own studies. And so it's an interesting usage here, the church of God, which is in Corinth. Okay, so there's also to the church which is in Rome. The church uh, is a manifestation of the work of Jesus Christ who establishes local churches. And what they were saying was that if Paul gives instructions in Corinth 
about what the church should be, then that applies also in Ephesus. And it applies also in America a couple thousand years later. Because this church is sort of an organic reality that we can't just totally see. We call that the invisible church. right? And the, and the church universal and the church universal triumphant. So over the years, theologians have added categories to just try to understand all the different ways this is understood in the scriptures. But so here is a church which is at Corinth with all the saints. Now, saints here means holy ones, and, and it gets its meaning from the Old Testament idea of being separated by God and to God. So a saint is one who has been separated from the world by God's work. So when we uh, believe the gospel by God's grace, he is separating us. And so that's part of the idea of an assembly is being called out once. Okay? So it's made up of ones called out of the world by God, separated to God as holy. In other words, holy in a sense of being fit for service of the Lord. In the Old Testament, the main idea was if something was unclean, it wasn't fit to be used in God's service. It was profane. Holy means fit to be used or fit to serve. And so we are set apart by God to be... Uh, here's a quotation I got from this David Garland. Uh, they are set apart by God to become holy. So there's a way in which we are already holy, legally. This moment you believe, you're washed by the blood of Jesus, and your sins are washed away, and you're holy. Amen. Legally. Amen. Now practically, nothing's changed yet. You can't even take that first little baby step. But legally and spiritually, there's a reality because you're regenerated that you're holy. Now, you have this in your book. You talk about this. But there's also this need to become holy that still exists. The practical aspect of sanctification. So we're set apart by God, in that sense holy already, to become holy, which will be fully achieved at our glorification. And that's what this is all about. Um, by the way, I liked your last chapter. <laughs> I told Ryan, I hope I didn't hurt his feelings, I said, your book is kind of flowery. <laughs> Compared to me, I just get, here's the facts, boom, 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 boom. And he has adverbs and adjectives, and it makes it more fun to read. <laughs> so, you didn't hurt your feelings? I, I, you, he knew it. <laughs> It's sort of a Pilgrim's Progress flavor to to the book. Uh, you'll you'll want to read it. When, I think a lot of people really like that. But the theology is just rock solid in there. Okay, I wanted to I wanted to show you something here. Um, uh, Dean, if you could look up Acts nineteen thirty two, and Claire, I got it right, didn't I? See, I'm, I can learn. Claire, um, Acts twenty twenty eight. I'm going to show you how the, both of these verses that they're going to read, Acts 19.32 and Acts 20.28, both use the term ecclesia. Ecclesia. But you'll see that one case is totally different than the other. All right, so the first one is used, it's not translated ecclesia, church, but it's used the same word. Okay, Acts 19.32. It's about a mob that's mad at Paul. Uh, some therefore cried out one thing and some another. For the assembly was confused, and the more part knew not wherefore they 
were come together. Okay, they didn't know why they came together is what that means in English. <laughs> that was English. This is, okay, but but notice the King James did. It's an interesting translation. I think I think the New American Standard does the same. Assembly, all right. But that was just uh, see in the in the secular use of the word. This was not a word invented in the New Testament. Assembly uh, was people. Someone called them together for some reason. Now, if the local mayor of the town says, okay, we're going to have a town assembly, ecclesia, because we're going to address this issue, or a dignitary's coming, I want people there to honor him, the group that came together is an assembly, ecclesia, called out ones, but they're called together by someone for a reason. Okay? So there, they were called together or because there was this event going on, Paul being on trial, they're trying to figure out what's going on, and they were, they got, they came into confusion, because Paul said he was there because of the hope of the resurrection from the dead, and that set the Sadducees against the Pharisees, and that's what sent the assembly, the ecclesia, into confusion. Now, the same word is used in, in the unique Christian way in Acts 20:28. 20, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he brought with his own blood. Okay, shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Now, the church there is ecclesia. So you see in one chapter of Acts, it means a group of mob assembly. In another chapter, it means the church. So well, what they had in common was they were called together out of the bigger city for some reason. So when we use the term in a technical sense that it's used to mean church in the New Testament, Paul shows us in Acts 20, 28, what the church, who, who consists of, uh, who is the members? <laughs> who are the true members of the church? That's what I was trying to say. That's not so complicated. They are the ones who are what? Purchased by the blood. Now that's a very important idea, isn't it? Amen. So the, the, the only way you can truly join the church as God sees the church is to be purchased by the blood. And one of my uh, strong criticisms of the seeker movement that I've published far and wide is that they removed the concept, at least publicly, of the blood atonement. So you have this huge membership thing. Here's how you become a member. You, you, you pledge to serve. You pledge to give money. You find your shape. You do all these things. And, you, and this is how you become a member. But the, the blood is not even mentioned. But according to Acts 20, if you haven't been purchased by the blood, you're not a member. Not of God's church. You might be a member of some organization. Does that make sense? And so there's a very definitive statement that church, and it's also a why, uh, why did Paul say to these Ephesian elders to shepherd the flock who are purchased by the blood? To, to put upon them the weightiness of their responsibilities. Because earlier in that same chapter of Acts 20, Paul said that he was innocent from the blood of all men because he did not fail to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. And so the idea is this. Dear elders, pastors, church leaders, these little ones were bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. And he is not willing that one of them should perish. And there's no such thing as someone so insignificant to not be worth the effort to care for. Matthew 18 is all about that. Well, they were arguing who's the greatest, 
And Jesus saw danger in that, so he brought a little child. He said, whoever is going to be the greatest has to be the least. And then he gives the, the, the story about the lost sheep. Everyone purchased by the blood is of great importance to the church. Amen. And that's what we should ask ourselves. Are they purchased by the blood? And if that's the case, they're worth the effort to care for. Amen. And so the elders would be having a sense of very weighty responsibility because God paid the price with his blood for these people to be a member of the church. Yes. The church that's purchased by the blood is also referred to as as the hidden church. We can see the whole church, but you can't see. Yeah, the invisible. Yeah. We use the term invisible church because um, we don't, we can't see the spirit world. We can't see the human spirit or the heart. It's hidden. So how do you know who the church is purchased with the blood? Very good question. Well, there's evidence that we are given in the Testament by fruit. But first of all, it's always possible that there's someone who comes to the visible church who gives all the external signs of being purchased by the blood, but they really aren't. But we can't do anything about that other than continue to preach the means of grace, hoping for conversions. But what we can do is church discipline. And we can use the term, you know, we can say, if you're willing to come to the church, and if you confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and you're willing to believe the truth of the gospel, and if you're willing to submit to the law of Jesus Christ as a binding law over your life, and you are, then we accept you. And most of the time, most of the time, the only people that will really do that are truly Christian, but not always. Because there are some that go out from us because they weren't really of us, John said. But we accept in the fellowship all those who agreed to the terms. Okay. Interesting in Second Peter that that question's really kind of asked and answered. Well, it's actually exhorted by Peter. Um, he speaks in Second Peter at the beginning. He tells of the grace and the peace and the divine power that's been given to us, and then he goes on this long list of um, for this reason, applying all diligence in your face, apply moral excellence, moral excellence knowledge, and he continues with all these characters of godliness and Christ-likeness. And then he concludes, he says, Therefore, brethren, um, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing of you. For as long as you practice these things, you will ne- never stumble. So calling and choosing of you is, uh, is precisely what we've been talking about. Being taken out of this world, being called out of the world and into the church. And elect- election has is, is ramifications for that also. So it, there's there's this element of the more we grow in Christ, the more we hmm. receive assurance mm-hmm. that we are numbered among the redeemed, and the more we see that in other people, the more we see the work of God in other people. So it, it, there's this tension of assurance. We have assurance that we can stand objectively before God, but Peter commands us to pursue these things because, as he as the word says. As you do these things, you will make all the more certain or be assured about his calling. Yeah, that's a good uh, good point, Ryan. And assurance isn't an all or nothing thing; it comes in degrees. So, because as Peter said, you can have you can have more or less assurance. It's possible it's possible to be redeemed and be very lacking in assurance. Yes, amen. Because sometimes people are just tremble over the law they spurned a lot and think. I wonder if God would has really redeemed me. 
Uh, and it's also possible to have a lot of assurance and to be totally lost. <laughs> because there's people in Matthew who says, Lord, Lord, we did miracles. We have, of course we knew you. Uh, no, you didn't. Okay, so you can have false assurance and you can have a lack of assurance and be truly redeemed. But what the passage that Ryan read is telling us that if we are growing in grace and adding virtues by God's grace through the walking in the Spirit, we will make our calling and election sure. In other words, we'll gain assurance. God doesn't need to be more assured that we're saved or not. He knows all things. It's us that need it. We're the ones that need assurance. All right, so let's back to our passage. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. We talked about how, how that happened. And Timothy, um, who is a co-sender of the letter, to the church of God, which is Corinth, we talk about what that means, the called out ones, and in this case, those in Corinth who are in that status, with the saints, those who are separated, made holy, separated from the world, to God. That's part of this whole idea of called out. Who are throughout Achaia, which was a bigger part of Greece. I think I showed you a map of that when I was early on, started teaching in Philippians. Then he says in verse 2, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And this has become a very familiar Pauline greeting. And it's been discussed over the years where it came from. And um, typically, the Greek greeting was Karin, but here it's Karis, grace, and peace was the Hebrew greeting. Uh, now, the Greek word for Greece is arene, but in the Hebrew it would be shalom. So, the Jews would, to greet someone, say shalom, peace. The Greeks, to greet one, someone would say Karin, cheers, or good cheer. And so Paul goes, Karis and Arene, grace and peace, and he combines the two common greetings in the world of that day, the, the Hebrew one and the Greek one, and has a, a distinctively Christian greeting, grace and peace. And that becomes uh, almost uh, very common in Paul's writing. Notice that the grace and peace comes from where? From God. Amen. Um, grace is one of the most important theological concepts in the New Testament. Like Hesed is in the old, very much related idea. Loving kindness. And grace would be, and you've probably heard various definitions of it, but God giving us uh, what we d- did not deserve. Uh, one, one of the t- ways I've described this, and I think others have too, about Grace and mercy, for example, because we're going to talk about mercy here uh, in the next verse. Um, great mercy is God not giving us what we deserve, and grace is giving us what we don't deserve. So what we deserved was God's wrath against our sin. God mercifully doesn't give us that. And what we didn't deserve were all the benefits of being a Christian, and that's what God does give us. Yes, uh, Nicole. Um, I was just going to mention that a friend of mine and I were just talking about this the other day, trying to make a decision about moving from one job into another job. And while I was praying for her about it, she just said, I just just want to have a peace about it. And um, we were talking about, you know, is peace a feeling or is it a faith? 
and I told her uh, that I was reading recently this very thing, Grace and Peace to You, from God Our Father, and I said it's interesting, the order of it, I think it's very um, purposeful that, that Paul said grace first and then peace, because there's no such thing as peace without grace first. And what I was able to share with her through that was that, you know, even though you're uncertain about making this step to another job, um, and all that you can weigh out all the pros and cons, you already have the grace of Jesus Christ with you. And no matter where you go, he will be with you. Even if you walk into something really difficult, you have his grace, the promise of his grace with you. And that should be your peace. That's a good point. Was it last week we were talking about this? No, we were talking about prophecy, about trying to find his will of God. And so very interesting that you bring that up. Uh, somebody says, well, I, I, I have peace about this. What they usually mean is, I have a nice feeling, I think this is the thing to do. But what I would say is, make your decision based on, if it's, if it's not something dictated by God, you're free to go do whatever job you see fit. And whether you get have peace when you get there, you'll find out. <laughs> if it's like most jobs, you probably won't have peace. <laughs> but every once in a while, you get one you like. Yes. You know what's interesting about the biblical when the when the Bible uses peace, it's speaking of our relationship most often. When in this context of our relationship with God, peace with God has been restored because our sins been taken care of at the cross. But be, when that happens, when peace with God happens. We, we, peace with other things are taken away. For instance, we don't have peace with our, with our sinful impulses anymore. Our sinful impulses, we're now at war with them. So a war has begun when we're at peace with God because we're fighting sin. And not only that, we, then we're at war with the world and the principles of the world. So peace with God is what you really want because that's the most important. But, but war is, is, there's an inception of, 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 of war then with the world, with Satan, and with sin. So um, that's, I mean, yeah. peace is only with God in, in that sense. Okay. And every once in a while the term peace does mean peace of mind in the Bible, but it's a lesser use. And we do have uh, righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. But again, it's peace with God. And even as far as making decisions, we know we have peace because we're, we're within God's will in the bigger scheme of what God's will is. In other words, if we're willing to submit to the law of Christ and make our decisions from the context of that, then whatever decision we make, we can have peace about it because we know Jesus isn't going to be angry. if you, if you Let's say you're a nurse and you could work at one hospital or the other. Jesus isn't going to be angry with you because you went to the wrong hospital. There's no wrong hospital. <laughs> okay. So, uh, grounded. Yeah. If you know you're right with God, you're going to have peace if you're going into the lion's den. Amen. Uh, okay, go ahead. I was in a catch 22 with assurance. I had a room full of Pentecostals and I was telling about 1 John 5 13 that God could keep you. Okay. That's one segment. And they said I was like the devil himself. Another group, I work with children. God says, if you lead the little children astray, a better millstone tied around your neck and throw it off. The highest bridge. So here I am between Pentecostals and the little children going to talk about assurance. All right? Well, I'm not the devil himself, and God does give assurance. I said to the children, now, what if you had a bus driver and he's taking you to the zoo? 
And he didn't know how to get you there. What would you think, children? They're 12 years old and I'm teaching. They say, we don't think you know what you're doing. Well, if we're going to preach the gospel, how can you have joy on the foundation if you don't know where you're going? God, the testimony within you is what Christ has done to shed blood and it gives you confirmation even in this world you have confirmation and can stand on since when in the spiritual world can't you stand that confirmation Okay, so your point is I I think I know what you mean (laughs) What, what Dan was saying is that if you rob people of assurance by some bad theology they no longer know where they're going you know, I remember um, uh, Reverend William Snow, one of my favorite teachers at North Central Bible College, and he addressed that, Dan, what you're just talking about. He said, um, he said, I think we got a problem with how we teach in our churches. And he said, let me tell you why. He, was a, he had been a military chaplain for 20 years, and he, uh, was, he spent a lot of time with people on their deathbeds and, and as a pastor. And he says, you can't, I can't tell you how many people that are in their deathbed in fear and trembling. And some of these grew up in churches. Some of these came from our churches, he said. And he said, because the, the preachers aren't granting assurance to anybody, they don't have it on their deathbed. And we've got to have some kind of a doctrine where people have, feel like they have assurance. And um, bad doctrine always has bad consequences. And so you've got to give people assurance or they wouldn't know where they're going. And if you know you're going to heaven, that's a very good thing. Yeah, amen. Now, uh, grace and peace to God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to give you a little, uh, this won't be a very hard assignment, but something to think about. One of the ways you interpret Scripture is by seeing repeated ideas in, in words. Words or synonyms of words. So if you want to look at this next section, verses 3, basically through, uh, I think it goes through 11 pretty much, yeah. Paul is talking about himself and what he's been through and what God's done. Look at, through those verses, what I do is I circle, I circle the words and tie them together on my notes. Look for repeated ideas. Right? There's three or four of them. And come back next Sunday, and we'll uh, have a little discussion about what repeated ideas we found in verses 3 through 11. And that will help us set the theme, what is Paul trying to tell us? Can we borrow your software? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no fair. You don't get to cheat. That's just for me. <laughs> no. But uh, you, can, or you can do it pretty well with a good English. If you have a literal English translation, you'll be able to do it right out of your Bible. If you have a little more sophistication, you can look up Greek words and see how many of them showed up. But otherwise, a literal English Bible will generally translate the same word very similarly, if not the same every time. So look those up, and then we'll see next week what more we can learn from Second Corinthians. So uh, God bless you. Remember to put the chairs away. We'll see you upstairs at 1030.